host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy, Jack Hahn. Jack, what's going on, man? Thankful that uh, my, my son's first cold is not worse than it is. Yes. Uh, we're all thankful. Well, your voice sounds great. Uh, hopefully, my voice sounds good. I'm, I'm remote today. We're recording this from a hotel room in Seattle here. I'm, I'm here on a, on a Black Friday to take in Canucks Kraken this evening. So, Hopefully all goes smoothly, but this is the this is the beauty of podcasting and and radio. We can uh, we can make it work with technology these days. So uh, we're gonna do a Friday mailbag. We've been doing these for the past couple of weeks now. They've been really fun, nice way to get the listeners involved, make it a bit of an interactive process, and end the week with some fun, thought provoking stuff. If you want to get involved with a future edition of the mailbag, since we're doing these every Friday now, just join the PDOcast Discord server where. We're going to be taking today's questions from a lot of good stuff from our listeners, uh, a lot of good uh, conversation going on in there. So the invite link is in the show notes. If you can't find it, just shoot me a message. I will gladly pass it along and get in there and join the community where uh, we're building up there. Uh, okay, Jack, here's the first question from David Castillo, friend of the podcast. I've been thinking about weak defensive teams, in particular, their weak defense within their top centers individually. Conversely, a team like the Dallas Stars, for example, doesn't necessarily have an all-world blue line, but their centers are all strong defensively, and the team as a whole winds up grading out elite defensively. While defender while defenders have gone positionless, centers have not. Have we reached a point where team defense is built primarily through its center position rather than the blue line? I think this is a really fun conver- uh, question for us to start with because it's very like philosophical, and I think that's what you and I do best here whenever you join the show and kind of uh, tactical certainly, but allows us to sort of think about the game, where it's at these days, and what really matters, and what moves the needle and drives the bus. How do you feel about that, Jack? So uh, th- this is going to be a complex question to unpack because there's a lot of pieces. To the first piece is uh, if we talk about positions, right? Like most teams now, uh, especially in offensive situations, they they're going to play F1, F2, F3, which means whoever's first is F1, whoever's second is F2, so on and so forth, right? So the, the the center really, it's obviously the center takes the face-offs and then the center has certain responsibilities following face-off, but it's less and less obvious who the center is because, you know, all three forwards are going to interchange in and out. So that's the first part. The second part is that um, the, the thing that really guides my thinking on this is a passage from a soccer analytics book I, I read a long time ago. It might have been Soccermatic. Uh, I'm not 100% sure, but um, in it, like the the author cites a, uh, a player tracking study that was done in soccer, whereby certain players, they dictate the action because they're the first on their team to respond to a situation. And then his teammates are actually reading off of him. So it's actually sort of like leadership in action where, you know, if you're the first person to maybe stop or change direction in anticipation to a turnover, for example, um, your line mates are going to see you do that and they're going to think, oh, maybe I should go that way because, uh, you know, because I, I trust, you know, this teammate's read. And I think one of the best examples of this is Patrice Bergeron. Like if you watch him uh, over the years, like normally speaking on a 50-50 puck, he's the first person to react, incredibly effective center, right? So, um so yes, um, you know, forwards are more interchangeable than ever, but if you want to be a center who's, you know, a good two-way player or defensively uh, sound, then preferably you're going to be the guy to, to first react to any sort of a, you know, unforeseen event, 
right? So I think that's really important. And if you look at a lot of the centers with really great kind of two-way reputation, so whether it's Kopitar or Couturier or, you know, Crosby or, you know, you name it, um, if you just follow the play a little bit and watch them when they're off the puck, they tend to make an early read and an accurate read more often than not. So I think that's really important. The other part of it is, so David mentioned defensemen, you know, play more positionless and activating. So now we're going to find the low forward, who typically is a center, um, doing a lot more defensive things. So they may be, you know, back first to retrieve a puck on the back wall in their defensive zone. They may be helping out boxing out in front of the net. They may be uh, filling in for pinching defensemen and taking on the rush, you know, whether it's skating forward or backwards. So, um, yeah, like there, there's a lot to it, but also um, it's not really necessarily baked into the system. But if you're a center with those characteristics, you're naturally going to take on those responsibilities. And, and that's why it's so tough to uh, identify or acquire these elite play driving centers because basically what you're asking to do is to be two places at once, right? Like they can either be on the offensive side or on the defensive side, and it's up to them in like in the moment to make that read. Well, there's a couple, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. There's a couple different ways, certainly to um, post good defensive results and particularly underlying numbers in today's game. There's the sort of uh, lightly used winger that generally just keeps the puck along the boards and doesn't necessarily, nothing happens. It's very low event. Nothing really happens either way when they're on the ice. I'm thinking of a, uh, a prime Zach Aston Reese, for example, and I think maybe wrongly, you could look at some of those defensive metrics and say, wow, this person should be a Selkie favor, or at least a Selkie candidate. Their defensive metrics are, are so sparkling. But in reality, um, just given their responsibilities and what they're being asked to use, do and how they're being used, I don't necessarily think that resembles good defense. It's really just a void of anything happening, right? The other guys are generally players who are going to be controlling the puck in the offensive zone and just keeping the puck down there and building these extended shifts where they're just leaning on you and cycling the puck and creating chance after chance. And those are typically just the best players in the game for the most part. And so when we say that, you know, the best defense is a good offense or whatever, I think there certainly is something to it. Now, if you're very rush dependent, right, and you're just kind of opening the game up and trading chances, that's probably going to wind up dragging your defensive results down. And that's a, a bit of a different conversation. But I don't know. I, I know that Daryl Belfry, for example, always one of his uh, his things that he always likes to hit is that the, the the offensive zone should really be where you actually do all the hard work. Like it shouldn't necessarily be thought of as the place where you just go and have fun. It's certainly glamorous and you get to go out there and, and do fun stuff with the puck and, and try to score goals. But you also, as soon as you lose possession, that's where the recovery starts, right? You You have to start, if you're a defenseman, you start pinching, you start surfing, you start trying to cut guys off before they can build up speed through the neutral zone. If you're a forward, it's on you to to go and grind out that possession and try to recover it to to help your defensemen so that they're, they're not having to now skate backwards and defend against the rush. So all of this stuff kind of ties together and works together. But I certainly th- th- think there is something to it that your top forwards will probably dictate how good you are defensively because I think what they're being tasked with, with the way the game is playing being played today, starting deep in the offensive zone, is kind of the more of the burden, I guess, is on their plate than maybe it used to be previously. Yeah, again, if you're a, a really elite centerman in the NHL, you're basically being asked to do two jobs, right? Like whether it's on offense, whether it's on defense, you, you just got to be really good at recognizing 
And, uh, you know, I, I was listening to the most recent episode with, with Daryl that you did. And when you guys get to Sasha Barkov, just notice how often he's actually getting back and playing defense almost. So, yeah. so I'll just throw it out. No, certainly. Um, he always stays above the puck in that regard. And I think that's also something I've come around to a lot where I remember I used to track during the postseason how defensemen were defending the rush, for example, right? If they're standing up at the blue line, if they were forcing dump-ins, if they were causing turnovers or whether they were allowing the other team to carry the puck in. And maybe this is less so true in the playoffs where generally, you know, the quality of the game and the players being involved and, and playing big roles is higher to begin with than you see in the regular season where there's just some bad teams and some bad players involved. But um, the support you have from your forwards as a defenseman and like how much they close that gap and how they're backtracking and how they're preventing the other team from just being able to skate freely through the neutral zone is going to have a direct impact on how the defenseman looks like, right? Because all of a sudden, if they're left on an island, most of them are going to sag back as, as a form of sort of self-preservation and just let you carry the puck in. Whereas if they know that their center is right on your tail as a puck carrier and he's pinching behind you, they're going to feel more emboldened to step up and and contest it. And that's probably going to lead to to more positive defensive results. So the two are kind of inextricably linked together, I guess, in a way. Yeah, that, that's hockey. That's hockey, baby. Um, okay. Anything else on on this question, or do you want to move on to the to the next one? I think because there was, I mean, there was so much to unpack that we probably could do a full tactical show on just team defense and and kind of who's responsible for what and what actually matters. But uh, I, I think that was like a good little bite sized entry into the conversation to to start today's show. Yeah, we got a lot on the menu, so maybe move on to the next. Okay, well, speaking of a uh, strong defense, let's talk about uh, this year's Minnesota Wild. Uh, Jack here, not Jack Hahn, but another Jack. There, there's many of them who listen to, to the show asks, where what's where are the Wild going wrong this year? Are their best players just not cutting it? Is it a negative PDO? Is Dean Evison not utilizing his players properly? The roster looks pretty good on paper, but they're just not getting the results so far. Now they have a five, eight, and four record. At the time of recording, they've trailed I believe still a league, a league high, nearly like 50% of their game time. And I think for the most part, if you look at that roster, it's one that I know sometimes in these chaotic situations, especially with their top players, they can they can come out ahead and they can benefit from it. But for the most part, I think they're ideally set up to, to play from ahead and kind of play that way as opposed to being down so often and then having to open things up and, and try to aggressively get back into the game. But I don't know how do we how do we look at what's wrong with this year's wild team and sort of what's to blame most because certainly when you're five eight and four the way they are and it's looked as ugly as it has I don't think it's necessarily just one thing. Yeah, so I I actually watched uh, uh, quite a bit of the Wilds uh, PK recently because I I did like a video breakdown on my newsletter on them and arguably the the worst PK in 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 hockey right now and the thing that I found really interesting is that. You know, systematically or structurally, they're playing the same PK as last season. But the only difference is that so Spurgeon was out for a bit. Um, you know, they, uh, uh, Fred Gaudreau was was out for a little bit, and it just looks like everybody else just are not on the same page. Like they're passive when they're when they should be aggressive, and they're aggressive when they should be passive. So they end up looking really. Well, what do we what do we attribute that to then because you mentioned that some of the personnel is different for the most part though they have had a fair bit of continuity with this with this roster and it's bizarre to see that penalty kill i believe right now they're giving up like 14 goals against per hour or so 
They're making every power play they come across look like last year's historically great Edmonton Oilers man advantage. So that certainly is not ideal. And I think that the combination of that and the goaltending clearly, which was a strength for them last year, has has regressed as well. Um, you know, Philip Gustafson had played 38 games last year, and I still think it was fair to have him in the Vesna conversation because on a per game basis, he was that good. Like even the private models graded him out as the most efficient goalie in the league. He had plus 18 goal save above expected last year in his 38 games. Now him and Flurry are minus 11 combined. So even when they're facing these opportunities, they're not getting the job done. So without that support behind it, it seems like it's all kind of converging and snowballing into this one big defensive mess. Yeah, like, I mean, obviously goalies are hard to predict and and I'm not going to, I don't really have much to offer on that, but certainly... You know, last year they got goal, good goaltending this year they haven't. But even independent from that, like it just seems to me that they haven't really upgraded their roster. They, you know, they, they've run it back with mostly the same core. And then, you know, I think Brock Faber is a player that they've promoted and they're playing more now. Uh, he's really struggled on the PK, actually. Uh, you know, they brought in Bogosian. But like, I mean, w- was the expectation for this team that they were going to be better? Because I, I don't really... I don't know, not necessarily better, but I think certainly not this this poor especially uh from a goal suppression perspective I, I think that has been a bit surprising i mean you're right like a lot of the additions or quote unquote improvements they tried to make were on the margins now when you're still paying about 15 million or so in dead cap to, to two guys who aren't even on the team anymore that's that's clearly gonna hamstring you or, or limit your flexibility for ways that you can actually improve the team so there is that but I don't know. It is still stunning to me to see that only the the Sharks and the Oilers, who's, um, you know, in the Sharks' case, all of their deficiency in the Oilers' case, like their goaltending and what a mess their defensive system has been, that's been talked about quite a bit, right? But for whatever reason, this wild team, which is like right there with those teams, has flown under the radar a little bit in terms of just how bad they've been defensively, and they're right there in terms of goals allowed. So um, that's certainly an issue. I guess the other thing is, and and. I guess you wouldn't have noticed this when you were just keying in on, on the penalty kill, but Kirill Kaprizov certainly hasn't played up to his standard as well, right? And so when your best offensive player also isn't producing to help mitigate some of this defensive stuff, that's how you get this this 5-8-4 record. Yeah, and I mean, you know, speaking of Kaprizov, like, you know, he hasn't been in the league that many years, but like he's starting to reach an age where you know that natural speed that he relies on so much is going to start to erode right you know Zuccarello's already there um you know Goudreau's I think he he's you know in his late 20s or early 30s but like right around that time like that's where we see players defensive impacts fall off because they're just not quite as quick at forcing 50-50s or, or winning those battles or like the thing that I see on the PK is you know, structurally, I understand what they're trying to do, but the players end up doing each other's jobs because they don't really trust their teammate to be in the right spot. So what what happens is the other team, like on their power play entry, uh, Minnesota's going to sag back. They're going to let the other team get the zone. But then once the other team's set up, they begin sort of chasing the play and being more aggressive than they should because it's almost like they're trying to make up for the fact that they were so passive on the entry. Right? So th- that kind of stuff happens when you're just half a step slow and also uh, the confidence that you have in your teammates erodes when you know that they're going to be half a step slow. And, and that's mostly what I'm seeing. Like it's it's not a matter of making wholesale tactical changes per se, but just 
you know, what can they do to regain that comfort level with each other on, on the kill? Like, like that's what I'm wondering. Mm. Yeah. I mean, Kaprizov, uh, I was looking at this at five on five this year, he's got one goal and five points, which is the same amount as Dakota Mermis on his own team. Now the wild are scoring with him on the ice. So they are creating, it's not like it's been a total zero offensively. He's just not personally getting points at the same rate on those goals as he used to previously. And like he's got an 865 on ice save percentage when he's out there. So yeah, he's been certainly affected by some of these things that might be out of his control a little bit. But I think, you know, you mentioned sort of that speed and 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 where he's at right now. I think he's also been like missing, I've noticed missing practices and stuff. And I think they'd acknowledge that he's banged up. So I wouldn't be surprised at all if he's if he's not anywhere close to 100% and he's just sort of trying to play through this because obviously even him at limited is still so essential for this team because if you take him out of this lineup, all of a sudden their ability to be competitive is just completely evaporates, right? So I kind of get that that's a, that's a, a balance they're trying to strike. Okay. Intelligent Dice asks, please fix the Penguins power play. And this was specifically directed at you, Jack. Yeah, apparently Intelligent Dice wanted no part of me trying to fix this power play. It was directly um, sent your way. They say they have no identity. What tactics should they try to employ to maximize the personnel on this unit? Now, I think the last time I had you on the show, you and I spoke quite a bit about the Penguins, but it was more so a general conversation about them. And at the time, they were losing a lot more than they were winning. They've kind of righted the ship a little bit in that regard. But the power play is still dragging quite a bit behind. So with the names involved, right? Crosby, Malkin, uh, Gensel, Carlson, even Latang, who, who sometimes they sprinkle in on that top unit uh, as they alternate the fifth guy. The names are there. The goals haven't resulted. Is it just a matter of low shooting percentage, this will come around? Or do you think there's something sort of structurally or fundamentally wrong with their approach that's leading to to these results? So, I mean, like like the underlying stats are good, right? Like it, uh, the rate. I mean, they're yeah. in shots and first and expected goals, right? You'd look at that and you'd say, all right, this this power play is humming along. But then you uh, you actually watch the results or you listen to how Penguins fans talk about it and, and you'd think it's like the worst unit in the in the league. Yeah, so uh, so the underlying stats are are, are good to great. Um, so doing nothing is certainly a reasonable option, right? Like not not that I I necessarily expect them to do nothing, but doing nothing is uh, is certainly a reasonable option here. Um, the the thing that that I looked at, which I found interesting, was I went on HockeyViz.com, uh, Micah Blake McCurdy's site. And he has a tool that actually shows you where each player uh, takes their shots on the power play. So what we see with the Penguins is that, first of all, their, their, their heat map is very warm near the net, which is obviously a good thing, but it's especially warm on the right side of the ice. And, and I think it makes a lot of sense because um, you know, all, all their big forwards on that unit are lefties. So whether it's Crosby, Malkin, Gensel, uh, you know, like Brian Rust would be the only right-handed forward uh will just spend any time with that unit this year mm-hmm. uh, i believe or, or actually raquel so R- russell raquel but they i think like you know that that fourth uh player or fifth player is kind of in flux but anyway so th- their shot map it skews right which means that for a smart team uh they chew in on that right because they know that crosby is looking for these backdoor tap-ins uh on the right side they know that malkin loves to hit his one timer from a little bit farther up right and the one tweak that maybe I would make is, you know, would Malkin be 
comfortable playing the left flank and taking some shots from the left flank. Because if you imagine now we have Malkin coming downhill with the puck on the left, we got we got Carlson back at the point. That's a forehand to forehand pass. If ever nothing's open, like that's a very reasonable play um, to reset. We got Gensel maybe in that bumper spot who's on his one-timer side if Malkin's passing. We got Crosby who's alternating between the strong side goal line, net front, and the back door, which which he loves. And that other player can be kind of on the right flank, maybe changing places with Crosby or, or Gensel, whatever, right? Um, I don't know how comfortable Malkin is because historically he well, he loves to bang one-timers from, from the right point and mm-hmm. you know, he, he scored a lot of goals that way. Um but I, I wonder, like, because that bit of real estate is is somewhat underutilized right now from a shooting perspective. And maybe if the Penguins just, you know, they take a few shots from there, they force the PK to uh, overload that side a little bit more. Maybe the backdoor plays open up because ultimately it's it is the backdoor plays that are going to pay the bills for them. But maybe the teams are just sitting on sitting on it a little bit too much right now. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Like I said, they're fourth in shots and first in expected goals, but they're shooting just 8% as a team, and that's got them 25th in the league, generating just about five goals per 60. Now, they were they were better in previous years, certainly, with a lot of the same pieces. Carlson's clearly new, but I think they were like still middle of the pack the past two years, right? I think they're 13th and 18th in those two seasons, respectively, so still not where you'd expect from the caliber of some of these names and, and superstar offensive talent. I guess, yeah, my, my question is, sort of the diversity of approach or what they're trying to accomplish because while when it works it looks beautiful and I think Malkin's been awesome this year and Carlson's been really really good on this team as well but them sort of taking shots from the edges of of the setup um, and and those two guys account for by far the most uh, on the team where you know, Malkin's got 43 shot attempts on the power play this year, and then Carlson's got 31, and then everyone else is sort of in the mid to low 20s. I believe Jake Gensel, for example, who's probably their best, most efficient shooter, just because of where he is on the ice and their setup, it's it's tougher to get him the puck, I get that, but he's got only 22 attempts by comparison. And so what they're actually trying to accomplish with this and like where they're funneling the puck to in terms of like, all right, if you talk to the Penguins right now at the start of a two-minute power play, where do you ideally want to get this puck and how are you planning on scoring? I do think there is something there where they probably are just going to be better as a result of some sort of progression, right? Some of these pucks will start going in more, but it's still probably not good enough for the type of players they theoretically have. Like it should be a more efficient operation as a whole than we've seen so far. Yeah. I mean, so so I would, again, doing nothing is completely reasonable and there are going to be I think they're going to be above average if they just kind of roll the back and just kept doing this but you know if, if we talk about like all the shorthanded goals that they've given up you know there was one that comes to mind where uh, Carlson tries to pass the ball two times in a row and they I think it was against Anaheim they get picked off they get scored like that kind of paints a picture of like maybe we're abusing this Carlson to Balkan at the right point pass a little bit too much and again like you know over the years like we've seen how first of all how great of a player Malkin is but also how stubborn he can be but it seems like once again the solution what what comes from massaging Malkin's you know uh, mindset so that maybe he can make some adjustments and then then the whole team could be better for it yeah I agree with that okay Jack um 
We've got a bunch of other questions here, but before we get into them, I think this is a good place for us to take a quick break. And then when we come back, we'll keep chatting with you and answering our listener questions that we've got in the mailbag. You are listening to the Hockeypedia cast streaming on the Sportsnet Radio Network. All right, we're back here on the Hockey PDO cast, joined by Jack Hahn. We're doing our Friday mailbag. Jack, uh, let's keep the questions going. Let's keep the fun going. RT2 asks, as a Canucks fan, we've had two coaches in a row now who are quite committed to having defensemen playing their strong side. Considering the much larger number of left-handed defensemen available, could a scheme be adopted to playing left-handed defensemen on the right side to exploit a market inefficiency in the league, or is it an insurmountable defensive issue? So I think we've spoken about handedness in the past and sort of its value or its impact and and players that are able to do it. Um, how do you feel about this though, and whether there would be a scenario where you were able to potentially make it easier on those guys just so that you could actually go out and spend your resources on not only them being more available, but generally I think being more freely available and, and cheaper because we play such a premium on right shot defensemen who are good. It seems like we elevate them more than their left-handed counterparts just because of, I guess, uh, supply and demand. Yeah. So th- this is something that I talked a lot about with my colleagues when I was in Toronto, that, like, especially the first couple of years when Justin Hall was perpetually eating popcorn in the press box. Like back then, you know, we had Hainsey play on his offside. And I think uh, Gardner played his offside a little bit, but we had, you know, we only had basically Zaitsev as, as a right D if memory serves. Uh, and the the thing that, that I, I've always believed is, you know, obviously we know that there's about twice as many lefties playing pro hockey than righties. So if you're building a team that's kind of ideal or optimal from a talent point of view, then you, you probably should have four left-handed Ds and, and two right-handed Ds. So, at, you know, at least one lefty is going to be playing on, on his offside. So, I think it's definitely something that you should be prepared for and have a framework to, you know, try guys on their offside if they're lefty, or, or at least you know, give them some guidelines on what to do. Uh, so, so I'm I'm definitely you know with uh, whoever asked that question. I I think that that's something worth thinking about. And one really neat example that we've seen this season is you know, apologies to Canucks fan, but it, it, it's uh, oh yeah, so Nightmare Larson got bought out last summer. He played on his uh, strong side in Vancouver and actually for most of his career uh, before that as well. But with Montour and Ekblad out in Florida, uh, he's basically been an average top pair defenseman playing his offside, which for a guy making close to league minimum is is actually quite brilliant. So so again, apologies for Canucks fans, but uh, study. Yeah, I mean, he's certainly not the first player for the Panthers to go out and add that we had written off or had low expectations for, and then all of a sudden they seemed to uh, to squeeze as much juice out of them as possible. I thought you were going to go with Sean Dersey. A, uh, I was going to say a personal favorite of mine, but I know you share the same uh, affinity for it, a PDO cast favorite. Certainly, you know, we try to squeeze him into the show whenever we can, but he actually goes the other way here, right? Where he is a natural right shot defenseman who played last year on the Kings on the left on his offside because they're one of the only teams in the league essentially that has this unique advantage of 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 an embarrassment of riches with that right shot defense position and so I think part of his struggles were were in terms of the way he was having a play 
stylistically on that team, but also part of it, I think, was in terms of playing that offside, particularly when he was going back and retrieving the puck. I think it was forcing him. So it's always going to make mistakes. That's the type of player he is. Um, but I think some of them were probably unnecessary just because of what he was being asked to do. And then now you look, he's playing his natural side on this Coyotes team. And not only is he putting up the, the goals and the points and the power play, but with him on the ice at 5 on 5, they're outscoring opponents 18 to 14. They've got a 51% expected goal share. And his usage is all the way up. He's playing about two more minutes per game at 5 on 5 than he did previously on a deeper Kings team. And so they clearly identified him as a guy they could get just because of where LA was at. And they got him for rare cheap and plugged him in as a, as a top pair defenseman for them. And he's played quite well. So I know it's kind of the opposite of what um, our listener is asking here, but similar concept in terms of why handedness might potentially impact a player and their results. Yeah, and, and Dursey is a really great case study going the other way because uh, I remember when uh, he went to the Coyotes, uh, Micah Blake McCurdy, in, in effective math, he, he tweeted out uh, Dursey's um, viz on his site, and you know he said Dursey's a weak five one five player, and the thing that immediately jumped up, jumped out to me was Dursey spent the whole season on his offside, and the thing is, is as a lefty there's a fair chance that you would have played on your offside growing up because most of your teammates are left-handed and as one of the better players on the team, um, maybe you know you get to play your offside but more. But I'd be very surprised if Dursey spent any amount of time on his offside as a right-handed player because especially growing up in Canada, right-handed players are rare and he would have spent basically his entire hockey career on the right and then all of a sudden being asked to change sides uh, in the NHL level, which is really difficult. Yeah, very unique situation. I guess the player that does fit this example most prominently is Miro Haskinen, right? Where he is a left shot who for years now has been asked to play pretty much exclusively on the right side for the Stars, except for a brief stretch at the start of last year where they had Colin Miller playing on the top air with him and that allowed him to bump to his natural side and, and he looked great doing so. Now he's just he's such a prolific player and so good at everything essentially that he can make it work. And I get that because they have all of these inferior options who can't do so, he kind of accommodates them and just bumps to his offside and they make it work regardless. Uh but it is a bit frustrating to see them keep asking him to do that where I just love to see Miro playing full time for an extended stretch on his strong side and, and to see what that would look like and whether it would yield different results because I think that would be an interesting case study. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. But again, it, it depends who his partner is, right? And because a lot of your reads, they change um, depending on the side that you're on. So if we go back to Ekdal Larson for a second, the two reasons why I think he's been really good in this, first of all, uh, you know, he's not the best skater, but he's a really good shooter. Like if you look at just his box um, boxcars, over the years, like he's consistently scoring, you know, double digits and goals. And uh, even if you look at kind of Micah's model, or whatever, like he, he's a plus shooter uh, relative to others in his position. So the fact that he's on his offside, the one timer is always open. He's getting a, a better angle to the net uh, on his wrist shots as well. You know, he's been shooting the puck a lot more, and, and that's really been good for his confidence. And also last year, I remember watching him with Vancouver, and he he struggled a lot defending the rush skating backwards but now that is on his offside he almost has no choice but to use that forward motion more to surf more and, and that's actually helped them as well um because actually like 
you know, the the worse skater you are technically, the better off you are skating. Mm. Okay. Let's go to the next question here from Nonsense Lasagna asks, we've seen a lot of box plus one adoption across the NHL this season. When a coach changes a system like that, do they consciously simplify pieces of it early on and introduce new wrinkles to it as the team shows it's actually grasping adverse NHL teams during games? Or are they showing them the ideal look right away and then correcting issues as they arise? We hear a lot about teams adjusting to new systems in early parts of the season to explain when they're struggling. And I was wondering if that's a result of the way concepts are being implemented. Now, there's there's certainly a lot going on here. I know you and I have spoken quite a bit in the past on this show about the Oilers and how some of the mis- misconceptions, uh, at the same time, you do watch them play and it's a different coach now, but there's just so many, so many breakdowns on front of their net, which in theory, in an ideal world, if they actually are playing that way, should should be completely eradicated, but instead they're they're popping up more and more. Um, that's a specific example of this. I think we can take an even bigger picture view of it and not necessarily limit it to just that one example, but sort of this idea of you've got a set roster or a, a, a type of personnel that's already been in place, and then whether it's a new coach or whether it's a new strategy that you try to implement over a new season in the offseason, how does that sort of work? How What's that process look like? And and at what, in your opinion, is the best way of sort of rolling that out to get the best results, especially in the short term, where you might not be able to afford like a long losing streak, where you're where you're ironing out all the bugs. So so I think different coaches do it differently. Like the the the, the past few teams I've worked with, I've been more of the mind that we should just go with sort of general ideas or general principles and see how the players understand it first, and then make adjustments as we go. So for example. Uh, you know, with the Connecticut whale um, of the PHF, um, you know, one of the first things we did was we went to more of a 2-3 ozone where we had the third forward coming up and then attacking downhill. So the the cue for the players was just, you know, roll up above the circles and then see what you have. And then whatever you do, whether it's a pass or a shot, you're, you're attacking toward the net as opposed to try to force the puck, you know, into the slot and, you know, toward our net. So that that's actually a really simple thing that players, I think, were able to grasp right away. And then um, the the nuances of it were able to iron out throughout the season. And then recently, I, I was exposed to another coach teaching essentially the, the same ozone system, but the way that they were doing it was a lot more, uh, I would say, rigid where it's like, okay, well, we want our defensemen to go when this happens. Or like there's, there's just a lot more decision rules, which... You know, I personally like I don't love just because when when you play in the ozone, things happen quickly, and uh, you you can't always be thinking about like okay, well, I'm going to do this if she does that or he does that. Mm. So I I'd, I'd rather go on the simple end, and, and the way that I would explain it to you, Dimitri, is let's say we're we're standing together in a room, right? And uh, and and I call you, hey, Dimitri, can can you move like two feet to your left? which obviously is like the simplest thing ever, right? So you move two feet to your left. But this very simple instruction, it gets more complicated if you're juggling, right? Like you're trying to keep three balls in the air and it's like, Dimitri, move to your, move to your left. And you're like, well, well, I'm trying, I'm trying. And and then it's like, you're juggling, but then there's a bear chasing. So I'm like, Dimitri, move to your left. It's like, no, like the, the bear is to my left. Like he's going to eat, right? But But that's what it's like when you're a player trying to implement a change where... You know, certain situations is quite easy. Like, let's say you change your neutral zone forecheck. Well, 
uh, you're just standing in a different place waiting for your opponent to approach you. So so that that's a very easy change. Uh, maybe some sort of a D-zone change is also very easy, where let's say if you're the winger, instead of cutting off the pass to the point, you know, quote-unquote, cutting off the top, now you're protecting the dot lane. So you're just standing 5 to 10 feet closer to the middle of the slot. That's a fairly easy change, right? Anything with the puck is a little bit more difficult because now you're thinking about, okay, like I don't want to lose the puck. I want to see where the pressure is coming from. I want to see where my teammates are. So, um, you know, if your coach tells you, okay, well, let's enter through the middle of the ice. Well, that's more complicated because you got to enter through the middle, but also you got to not lose the puck and you have to be mindful of what the next play is. And then uh, executing this under pressure or when the momentum of the game is against you, you've been out there for a while, that's like trying to juggle with a bear chasing you. That's really difficult. And that's where you see a lot of breakdowns happen, even for many NHL players, because they're tired, they're overwhelmed, and also they're trying to problem solve something that they're not familiar with. Yeah. No, I think that's a great point. I think how all of this, this, this sort of trickle-down effect or an accumulation over the course of a game where I think there's there's some examples certainly where you can isolate it to just one decision-making process that a player made and, and go, all right, that was either very good or very bad. But for the most part, a lot of it is kind of expectation of, of what, if you're a defenseman, for example, what your partner is going to do if X, Y, and Z happens, where they're going to go, and then your confidence in that they're actually going to do it. Similarly for uh, forwards and the forecheck and, and things like that, and, and especially with the F, F3 kind of knowing that they're going to be back there and supporting you and and making the right reads. And so, I don't know, this Oilers team, I, I cited that as an example. They're in an entirely different stratosphere right now in this regard. Like you watch that game against the Hurricanes and there's the one play where it's like, I have no idea what route or what Cody CC is even trying to accomplish in his own zone. There's the, the Marty Natchez goal where essentially four Oilers players are just watching him as he's batting as he's banging away at a rebound in front of the goalie and finally scores i mean there's just so many breakdowns and so many poor decisions being made it seems like a bunch of players who don't necessarily really know what they're supposed to be doing and and i think that's also just been an accumulation of kind of being just absolutely beaten down these past couple weeks by all these results and just how catastrophic this year has been for them so there's a lot to parse there but i I think that's certainly a, a big part of what's going on yeah, and and you really can't underestimate what you know having like a a streak of super low PDO or super low save percentage can do for you. Like I remember one year uh, I was working with the with the Marlies and for like three whole months we we just could not get a save. Like we were getting the same kind of goaltending early in that 2018-19 season that uh, the the Oilers are getting now, and it was like. It seems like everything was going in. Like I think two games in a row, we got scored on uh, the first shot of the game, or there was like a clearing attempt that went off the back wall, off our goalie's foot, and then in the net. It was like you feel like the world is is just like like falling on top of you, and and you're completely hexed, and like you can't even think straight anymore. So like I at least sympathize with Oilers players and and staff. Well, and there's also I think a, a key distinction where you know when you talk PDO, right? It's a combination. Of, of shooting and save percentage and I think offensively certainly if you're going through a rut where you've gone a handful of games without scoring and you're expected to score every time you play there's going to be a certain amount of pressure on you and and you know we're all familiar with the concept of maybe gripping the stick a bit too tight and 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 that allowing that to seep into your game but you also hear players talk all the time about as long as you are actually getting opportunities 
and getting chances and the puck's coming to you and you're in the right spot and you're getting your looks off, it can be frustrating if you're not turning them into goals, but you still feel like, all right, I'm playing the right way and things will eventually, if I continue this, I'll I'll start scoring, right? It's going to change. The tide's going to turn. Whereas I think defensively, if you have no confidence in your goalie behind you or the puck is just going in every time you you make one little simple mistake or or even you don't and the puck still goes in, I think that's going to have some sort of of major impact on your future decisions and then the way you play, right? Even if it wasn't your fault or even if it it, you know, rationally it shouldn't, but that's just kind of that's that's human nature, I think. There's a human element to the game certainly and I think that's part of it. And so I think that's when you talk PDO, I think on the two ends of the ice maybe I think it's easier to justify process on one and on the other. I think there can be kind of a different calculus involved. Yeah, because if you know if you're missing scoring chances, at least there's a silver lining in the sense that you're doing good things. Whereas if you're simply just you know coming back to your D zone, you're in your spot, your man's covered, and then all of a sudden the puck's in your net, you're like, like like what the heck do I have to do here? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. Okay. Next question, and it might be our last one. We'll see if we can squeeze in a few more. But JR Jersey asks, Devils haven't been as good this season at 5-on-5. Is there any major difference that Jack sees to the way they're playing, especially from their defensemen? And I imagine the reason brings that up is not only because they're giving up more goals and the goalies have struggled. And, and you know, I think their most recent game, they lose 5 nothing to the uh, Detroit Red Wings, but also because that's where the most changes have been made, right? They, they brought in Tyler Toffoli and... and Hishier and Hughes have missed time, um, but for the most part, the forwards are relatively the same where we saw Damon Severson and Ryan Graves leave and, and they're incorporating different players in the back end now. So that's kind of an easier change from a personnel perspective to, tra- to, to trace on this roster. Um, where are we at with the Devils and how do we sort of talk about this? Because on the one hand, there's clearly so much talent in place and I think there's still a lot of good stuff happening where you don't necessarily want to panic and act like, okay, this is you know, this season's going south quickly, but at the same time, these results that they're getting are very uncharacteristic to to what they got last year and I think what our expectations were for them heading into this season. I think they're going to be fine. I mean, like if you look at Colorado uh, in, in the past three years, there has been stretches where Colorado's had trouble really dominating play and, and you know, because of injuries or just because you know the players are are gelling as well, but and 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 they're fine now, right? And the thing is, is when your when your game is so much based on having the puck and playing off the rush and and getting these sort of quick strike chances, if the other team plays you defensively correctly, you shouldn't be getting them, right? And and if your execution is not top notch, then you can go cold for a little bit, and your uh, offensive stats can tank and then and because you don't have the puck now you're playing more defense and then your defensive stats are also tanking like these are just things that happen if you're a team that tries to play with possession if you're not on your game uh you know the, it, it can be a little bit fitting certainly and i think some of the numbers that i see you know you watch them play and then the numbers kind of back this up i'm looking at their data from from sport logic this season and offensively they are still creating a very high volume of everything you want to see, right? All those chances you mentioned, everything uh, in the attacking zone, it all looks good. It's all in that top five range. It's elite, and we should expect them to score significantly more five-on-five goals. One change that they had made last year as a team to previous versions of them that I think was a big reason why they took such a step as a team was that ability to sustain some of these offensive zone sequences where, all right, you're 
you're a fast young team, you got a lot of skill, you're trying to attack off the rush and score that way quickly. But then if that doesn't work out, are you all of a sudden having an out backtrack and defend in transition? Or are you able to recover the puck, keep the puck in the offensive zone and build on that and then have a, a, an ensuing successful shift? And their offensive zone possession time in terms of keeping the puck in there after these sequences has dropped off quite a bit this season where I believe they're like a bottom 10 team in that regard. So that's one concern. And then maybe that's partly why they're giving up so many more uh, high danger chances and inner slot shots as well, where that's regressed quite a bit. So I think those two things might be kind of correlated or tied together, but that's where I would look at in terms of areas they significantly need to improve if they want to get back to where they were last year, because that's really the only real weakness other than like, yeah, you know, they have an 890 percentage or whatever, their goalies haven't been as good, but I think we need to look at why that's happening. Yeah, I mean, if if they do a better job of managing the puck in the ozone and surviving that first shot against off the rush, they're going to be fine. And it's the kind of that an NHL coaching staff is good at identifying and fixing over time. So I'm really not worried about the Devils. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, th- there's, a, there's a lot there. And I, I think, especially as they just get healthier, um, they're going to iron this out and get back on track. The fact that they've braved the start of the season as well they have, I think it should be encouraging I mean, they have a 39% 5-on-5 goal share right now, which is only better than the San Jose Sharks, and they're giving up 5-on-5 goals at the fifth highest rate, and part of that is is goaltending, but I think part of it is stuff that they can sort of address and look at and iron out, so I want to see that from them moving forward. Okay, Jack, we got a few other questions, but we're running out of time here. I mean, I, I guess we can quickly squeeze this one in from Taylor, just because I, I wanted to pick your mind about it. I thought it was interesting. Uh before we get out of here, Taylor asks, what are some of the guidelines for composing a good forward lineup in today's NHL? Are there different strategies that we know to be more or less effective? For example, is it better to load up two lines or spread talent throughout the lineup? Is it better to have some lines that are more offensively oriented versus defense first? Um, just in terms of all things being equal, let's say you just have league average personnel, you're not either good or, or bad specifically. How are you trying to kind of construct that group? Are you looking for specific strengths and tendencies that are work together with each other? Or is there specific stuff that you're, you're wanting to, like a checklist you're wanting to make sure you have um, throughout your four forward lines? Uh, that, like that's a really, that's a really broad question, but I'll, I'll give you a bit of like an esoteric answer. But mm. uh, there is uh, a former Swedish hockey player, uh, I Unfortunately, I don't remember who it is. Uh, might have been Ulf, uh, Ulf Nielsen. Anyway, but um, he said that uh, the way that you give a pass should be like the way that you give a handshake to an old friend. And for for a line to work, you need some players who can play off the pass and play off the pass with each other. Mm-hmm. So regardless of the individual skill set, like that, that's essentially what you want is you want three forwards who are comfortable getting the puck to each other and uh, getting open to receive a puck. So whether they're big, they're small, they're slow, they're quick, they're shooters, they're passers, they're tough or not, uh, you, you just need three guys who complete some passes together. Right. Now, those players haven't... Like I imagine there, there's going to be a feeling out process regardless. Sometimes it, players are just so good and work so well together that, that it just seamless and right away you're like, all right, this works. I think other times it probably will work if you give it enough time, but if the results aren't there, maybe you'll be kind of, you'll put the lines black in a be- in a blender and uh, and mix them up all over again. Are you, if it's not working right out of the gate, but you feel like it should, are you going to be more lenient to give it time to kind of play itself out a little bit? Or are you just 
you're giving them a chance if it's not working, you're trying something different. And again, um, you know, t- talking about playing off the pass, well, every player has areas on the ice that they're comfortable getting the pass in. And this is something that I know Daryl talks about quite a bit. So mm-hmm. if you have three guys together who are complementary in that sense, so let's say, you know, one guy's really good at digging pucks out of the corner, uh, another guy is really comfortable getting pucks in the high slot and shooting, the other guy is really good off the rush, there's there's ways to make it work, right? So uh, if you think, well, okay, um, these three guys, like their natural tendencies mesh really well, but the, the experiment hasn't been conclusive so far. Maybe you want to give it a little bit more time. Mm, yeah. Okay. We are out of time for today's show, Jack. We didn't get to do our uh, reconvening about the Nashville Predators, even though I know we know we wanted to a team that I'm striving to uh, to cover with you every time we have you on this season. But uh, maybe we'll have to save them for next year because we kind of we earbarked it last time we spoke. And uh, and things have changed in some ways. They're sticking in others, um, but maybe we'll have to save that for next time we uh, we chat. Yeah, let's see. Let's see if there are any good uh, in a few months. I've been I've been sending you whenever they play well. I've been sending you um, some cheeky remarks. When they don't, I conveniently ignore it. So uh, we'll see how that goes in the next couple of weeks. All right, I'll let you plug some stuff here on the way out. Um, let the listeners know what you're working on, where they can check you out, all that good stuff. Okay, so it's Black Friday and a lot of people want you to spend money by offering you rebates. I'm actually here to offer you something for free. So if you go on jhanhky.gumroad.com, one of my ebooks I'm actually offering for free for the first 25 people to use the code uh, PDOcast. Oh, look at that. Wow. Yeah, yeah, free stuff. Uh, so that, that ebook is hockey tactics retrospective. So it's a breakdown of all the great teams from the seventies and eighties, a lot of like retro, very niche, uh, things fully illustrated. You're going to love it again, uh, free for the first 25 listeners who use code PDOcast at checkout. All right. Well, I love that. Uh, thank you for doing that for our listeners. If you're listening to this and you want to go check that out, go quickly do so before, uh, 25 other people do it and uh, that offer expires uh, Jack thank you for taking the time and coming on while you're battling uh, battling that cold we uh, hope you feel better and we'll certainly have you back on shortly thank you to the listeners for listening to us um, if you want to get involved like I said at the top of the show with future mailbags on Fridays just join the discord the invite link is in the show notes and send those questions along and we'll definitely get to them and we'll be back shortly with more of the Hockey PDO cast here on the Sportsnet Radio Network.